Uh, they insist on taking my nieces and nephews, even Lucy, with them. I may, uh, you may see me on the news sometime this summer that a child has been abducted. About so high, African American, she will be with me. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it is what God has called them to do. I am convinced of that. He is the right man for this job with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now just crew. Um, I'm ringy. Do you know I'm ringy? And, uh, and I'm convinced of that. It doesn't make it any easier uh, for me. But um, my other sister's really excited that we get to celebrate her husband's 50th birthday in Orlando, though, so that, <laughs> that'll be fun. Do you have any questions for me before we begin? Not that I even can think right now, but uh, I'll do my best if you have questions. Diane, oh, the whole table has a question. Okay, Diane, hang on just a second. No pressure, yeah, okay. Oh! Well, she did have her hand up, and I preferred you. Just so, no pressure. Yeah, uh, from, from Esther, do you mean? Or, oh, see that, I, and I made a note, I made a note, that was my fault. I move back and forth between verses and forget to tell you, go back to what we're actually reading. Uh, and I made a note in the, in case I ever teach this again, that that needs to be changed. It was to notice something askew in, in Esther, nine, I think, not ten. So... Well, I, and I'll talk about the answer, but the answer is that it gives credit for the law to Xerxes, like he deserves any credit. When it came to his attention, he decided he needed to save the Jews. Yeah, that is exactly the way that played out. Uh, so, and, and, and some scholars think that, that that was just the cleaned up version for, for, um, for mass, you know how you, sometimes you tell just a little bit slightly different story to, to a group of people you don't know very well, and then you tell the truth? to people you know somebody really well. Um, that might have been the cleaned up version for the masses that it, Xerxes saved the Jews, but we know the real story. Was that your question too, Diane? Okay. That they didn't necessarily know. Uh, so, so if he has to explain how this, how this came to be, and this is how we celebrate, this is why we celebrate it, this is how it got its name, is that his audience by this time maybe didn't necessarily know exactly what it was uh, they were celebrating. One of the commentators I read said that it's sort of like uh, every Christmas, there are millions of people who sing joy to the world, the Lord has come without really any idea of what they are singing, what that means uh, for them and for the world. And why that should be joyful, and it's kind of kind of like that. Yes, Jill. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I am definitely going to address that at the end, so I'll, I'll defer the, the the question about uh, what that why why is that or why are those last three verses tacked on there about tribute. Uh, which is taxes um, being collected. Any other questions? We will pray. 
Father God, thank you so much uh, for this day. Thank you so much for your grace. Father, uh, selfishly, I just ask that you would surround me with your grace and your strength uh, and enable me to speak your word today and um, to do it in a somewhat clear manner. And uh, thank you and praise you that you are Lord of all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of my very favorite movies is uh, Remember the Titans. I can't name a favorite, that whole question, what is your favorite movie? I hate that question. Here's how I categorize a favorite movie. If you said to me, Would, do you want to watch Remember the Titans? At any point in time, and one time I did watch it at 2 in the morning at a tribe lock-in thing here, and I say yes, it doesn't matter when it is, no matter where it is, I'm going to say yes, uh, that's a favorite movie, and I've got a number of them. And Remember the Titans is one. Did anybody else see? I love football. and I'm, Oh, good, good. At the end of Remember the Titans, which is based on a true story, in fact, my brother-in-law was uh, at a competing school, high school, at about that same time as, as that happened. Uh, actually, his older brother was. But anyway, um, at the end, they do a where are they now? And they tell you, what, you know, where Petey is and where and Sunshine is and all that. Well, this is kind of what the author's doing. It's kind of a where we are now. He's come back to the present time, although he's still using the past tense. That was a really bad question. Sorry. Um, but he's come back to the present time, and it's like he's saying, this is where we are now. This is why we celebrate Purim. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the gist of what's going on here. But Purim has a very different origin than most other feasts that are described uh, in the Old Testament, or, or most Jewish feasts, I should say. And I just want to use as an example just a, a small portion of the establishment of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which are celebrated back to back, um, and, and they are commemorating the passing over of the angel of death so that the firstborn of the Jews was not killed when they were enslaved in Egypt. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is celebrating that they had to leave Egypt so quickly they didn't even have time to let their bread rise. They had to take unleavened bread with them and, and their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And this is what God said uh, to Moses about that in, in Exodus 12. He said, this day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. I got in big trouble one time when I had a bagel sale at Millard North for the student council during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was, in fact, the place I got the bagels. They had to go to the back door because they didn't want anybody to know that they were still making the bagels. But we won't go into that. Anyway... <laughs> I'll never forget that. Boy, did I get in trouble. Anyway, I'm sorry I'm not Jewish. I didn't know. Uh, for seven days you're to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast is in it from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. From the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do not work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is what you must do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. And they still do today celebrate this. But what I want you to notice is that God is the one who commanded Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to be celebrated. And notice also that it is to be a festival of thanksgiving to God. They are to have sacred assemblies of worship to give thanksgiving to God for what he did in delivering them, delivering the Jews from Egypt. 
Also notice that the celebration acknowledges that it was God who delivered them, not Moses, not Aaron, not some sort of set of circumstances or coincidences. It was God who delivered them, uh, delivered uh, the Jews from Israel. Now, Jewish feasts, there, there are seven of them. Um, most of them, like these two, Passover and the Feast of Leavened Bread, were instituted in the Torah of the Bible, instituted by God in the Torah. The Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by Moses. Um, and, and each of them celebrates that God has done exactly what he said he would do. God promised something, and he did it. And a lot of them, like Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, have to do with deliverance, the deliverance of the Jews from some dire circumstance. So therefore, because God has done exactly as he has said, therefore they are a celebration, as, as Karen Job says, of the efficacy of God's word, that God does exactly what he says he will do. Uh, he, what he promises to do is promises are true. There are two feasts, however, that um, we do not find in the Torah, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. One of them we don't find in the Old Testament. That's called Hanukkah, which you know probably better than any Jewish feast. It's called the Festival of Lights. It is in the New Testament. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah in the uh, New Testament. Um, it is an, what's called an intertestamental uh, feast, meaning that it was established after the Old Testament was written and before Jesus was born. And it celebrates deliverance too. It's the celebration of the rededication of the temple after it had been taken over by and desecrated by a tyrant whose name was something like Antiochus Epiphanes. But Judah Maccabee led, or Judas Maccabee, led this revolt that they should not have won. They were a bunch of ragtag uh, uh, just, you know, rebels that defeated this great army out of an interesting set of circumstances at, you know, against all odds, they won and they rededicated the temple and uh, that is Hanukkah. That's not found in the Torah and it wasn't instituted by God, it was instituted by the Jews themselves. Purim is the other and that's exactly where we are in Esther today. We, uh, we're going to read uh, verses 20 through 22 of chapter 9. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food, to one another and gifts to the poor. Um, so this feast is not instituted under God's authority. It's actually under Mordecai's. It's Mordecai's command rather than God that institutes Purim. And in fact, it says the Jews got relief from their enemies. There is no mention that God was the source of the relief. Uh, and, and it says it's to be a day of celebration. But there is no mention that it is to God that they should be thankful. Now, to be fair, 
Purim definitely became and is today a celebration of gratefulness to God for his deliverance of the Jews during the Persian Empire. Um, but my point is that in Mordecai's dispatch, as it was originally written, God's not mentioned, just like he's not mentioned in the entire story. And the authority for this celebration is Mordecai's authority. It is Mordecai's command. It is not God's. God does not say, you will celebrate this till the end of time. Mordecai says, this will be a lasting ordinance. Uh, and Mordecai wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a king. Uh, he wasn't Moses. Uh, he was uh, an ordinary guy who happened to wear the signet ring of a pagan king. He was part of a pagan government. And yet it was under his authority and Esther's that Purim was established, and it is celebrated to this day. Now, there's two different ways to celebrate the fact that it's to be celebrated on two days, the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. One might be that all Jews are supposed to celebrate Purim on both days. More likely, it means that the Jews were to celebrate Purim on one day, the day that corresponded to them. Remember that in Susa, they had a second day of battle. So that would mean if you were in Susa, then you celebrated on the 15th, but all other Jews were to celebrate on the 14th. Uh, and to, and that, the reason I say more likely that's what it means is that today, Purim is celebrated on one day. Most Jews celebrate Purim on one day. All Jews celebrate on one day. Most of them celebrate it on the 14th of Adar, uh, except in a few places, including Jerusalem, where it's celebrated on the 15th of Adar. Um, but it's still a one-day celebration, and it is still a raucous celebration where they uh, rejoice and they send gifts of food and other things to their loved ones and their family and and the, the book of Esther is read in its entirety, complete with noise and shouts and cheers and jeers and noisemakers. And, and, and it's a huge celebration. And this year, uh, Purim will be celebrated on March 7th and 8th. Now, I just got finished saying that it's one day. In the Jewish calendar, Jewish holidays, including Sabbath, are celebrated from sunset of the first day to sundown on the next day. And that is considered one day. So this year, on, at sunset of March 7th, Purim will begin, and it will go through sundown on March 8th. So then in verses 23 through 28, we have an explanation of the celebration. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word purr. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. 
These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by, in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So, who is it that it says gave them relief in these verses? It's actually credited to Xerxes. Xerxes is the one that when it came to his attention, uh, that he granted relief to the Jews. And that is very ironic, as you already realize, because first of all, the king had almost nothing to do with the law that was passed. He got really angry at Haman and hanged him, or, or killed him and had him hung on the gallows. But he had almost nothing to do with the law. Basically, this is what he said. Esther comes to him and says, please write a counteracting law. And he says, yeah, baby, here's the ring. Take it, do whatever you want. I don't care. I got a bar crawl to go to. Uh, and that was essentially how, how his, his involvement in the entire thing. Uh, but more importantly, even if he had been involved, the king was not at all in control of what was going on in any of these events. Uh, the one who was in control didn't have to have the situation brought to his attention. He already knew what was happening. He already had a plan because he was in complete control uh, of everything that was happening. And then we find out why, uh, how it is that Purim got its name, that it comes from the Persian word pur, uh, which means lot. And I showed you a lot before that's kind of like a dice that was rolled to make a decision. It was, uh, you know, to decide what the gods wanted or the Jews used it to decide what God wanted. Christians used it in the New Testament next to decide who God wanted to replace Judas. Um, and, but per, the word per, appears nowhere else in the Old Testament. It is a Persian word. Whereas the word goral, G-O-R-A-L, which is the Hebrew word for lot, appears many times. In fact, it appears a lot of times. I thought that was cute, actually, <laughs> in the Old Testament. Now, the, the, the name Purim comes from pur, the Persian word, and added to it is the Hebrew suffix, uh, im, which makes it plural. So essentially, Purim means lots. Uh, it's the plural of, of pur, uh, kind of a, a mixed word there. But there is a double entendre in, going on in this world, word because the idea that God is in control of all events, he's in control of both how the lot falls, the pur falls, as well as the situation, the lot uh, in life of his people. Um, and that, that idea is all over the Old Testament. In fact, it's all over the Bible. But, but the, the name Purim comes from the fact that Haman cast a lot, he cast a purr to determine the fate of God's people. And the celebration derives its name from that. At the same time, God was in control both of that singular purr as well as in control of the fate of his people. Haman wasn't deciding anything. God was the one who would determine the fate of his people, the lot of his people. And Purim is also a celebration of that truth as well. Um, 
Purim is, is probably celebrated differently in our century or in the last century than uh, it was previously because of the Holocaust. And, and many Jews today literally cannot celebrate Purim because of the horrific events of the Holocaust. They feel like uh, God, if God was God, if God was sovereign, then he would have stopped that. And if he could stop it and he didn't, then he's a monster. Uh, and uh, they have trouble or even can't celebrate it because of those horrific events. And indeed, there are very difficult theological questions that arise from a situation like the Holocaust. I gave you a question this week that I won't answer. <laughs> um, it, it would take a long time to try to answer it, and I don't think it can ever be answered completely, to try and help you think through one of those theological questions. Um, but here's the deal. As indescribably awful as the Holocaust was, it was at the same time proof that God will never allow his people to be destroyed. Because that was Hitler's intent. And he didn't succeed. He did not destroy the Jews. However, God's people are now those who are in Christ. We are God's people, we who are in Christ. And therefore, the only true way to make sense of Purim is through the redemption, through the work of, through the coming of Christ into our world. And so I want to talk a little bit about Purim in the light of, in light of Jesus, and more particularly in light of the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus transforms the meaning of Purim. Because it, it was through the resurrection that Jesus defeated death itself. You know, yeah, we will all die physically. But death has lost its sting. Because we will not die eternally. We will not die spiritually. So therefore, it is only because of the resurrection that we know that no matter what happens to us, no matter whether we live or die, whether we live in freedom or persecution, whether we are wealthy or poor, no matter what, we will not be defeated by the grave. Rather, we will triumph against all expectation. And that is the meaning of Esther as we look at it on this side of the cross. It is not just some isolated story. It is, in fact, a foreshadowing of our ultimate and final salvation in Christ. Because the forces of evil, as they came after Jesus, come after us time and time again. But because of the cross and because of the empty tomb, we know they will not win. They cannot, they, in fact, they've already lost. And Satan knows that. And they will ultimately be destroyed forever. Karen Jobes calls Esther, uh, the story of Esther as part of an eschatological link. And eschatology is the story of our ultimate destination, the story of the end of all things that ends with us living forever uh, in, in heaven. And, and she calls it a link because between this covenant God made with his people and our ultimate final destiny uh, as, as uh, living with, with uh, Jesus and with God forever in heaven, is this story that is a link from that covenant pointing forward to that end. And, and that, is, that is part of the meaning of Esther. In fact, even its name, 
hints at this, or excuse me, even its date hints at this. Most uh, holidays that are celebrated because of a battle are celebrated on the day of the battle. Esther isn't. It's celebrated after the battle, after the threat of death was over, after there was rest. And so even in its date, the Perrine points forward to a time when we will enter eternal rest, when we will live in a time where there is no more pain or death or dying or tears or moving to Orlando anymore because we can be together. That really just comforted me right now. I just got to tell you. Live together forever. Isn't it amazing how the Bible all fits together and how it all points to Jesus? Well, uh, we read about Esther's part in, um, well, I don't even know where we read about Here, here. Read about Esther's part in this whole thing. So Queen Esther, Esther daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. So what this is saying is, what, what is the deal with the second letter? How many letters are we talking about? Here's the long and the short of it. Apparently, Mordecai wrote a letter with the events of, of the story and saying, celebrate Purim forever. And then Esther wrote a letter confirming everything that Mordecai had written. Said, you know what, I just want to put my good word in for this guy and his story. It's true. The thing that's amazing about this is it says that Esther wrote with full authority. A Jewish woman... Um, is writing with full authority. Part of the reason this, this celebration, this feast, exists and exists to us today is on the authority of a Jewish woman in ancient times. Uh, and that is an amazing thing. Esther, the Jewish girl, writes to confirm this feast that is celebrated to this day. In fact, in, in the Hebrew, the author's words uh, are at least hinting that Esther's authority is every bit as authoritative as Mordecai's or Xerxes' authority. She really had come a long way, baby, from Jewish uh, girl to shy queen to emboldened uh, mediator to someone who served as, as queen of the Jews, essentially, as their leader. Xerxes' part is really interesting. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts and power of might and might together with their full account of these greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes preeminent among the Jews and held high in esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews um, so what's the point of this? Why, I mean, isn't the story over? Why are they bringing Xerxes, who really had nothing to do with anything, back and saying Xerxes collected taxes? What, is, what does that have to do with anything? Here's what I think the author is telling us. The more things change, the more they stay the same. 
Yes, the Jews had been saved. Yes, it was a great um, victory, and they had, had not been destroyed, and that's huge. But they still lived under this tyrant who ruled um, to, according to his own interests. He cared nothing of the interests of his people. He was impetuous. He has, as my nephew had, as my nephew calls them, angerment issues. And that didn't change. In a sense, everything has changed, and nothing has changed. And I think this is written to give us hope. Because yes, our final victory has been won, our destiny is secure, and we can find hope in that. At the same time, we live in a tragically broken and frankly, yucky world. But we won't always. We won't always. And that gives us hope. I believe that Esther 10 is pointing us to a day when we will no longer live in this yucky world. Um, and it will be a time when the king of the universe, who is called faithful and true and rules by love and justice, will be on the throne. Well, I just want to give you a couple final thoughts on Esther, and if we don't have time to sort of preview Ruth, that's okay. Uh, we can do that next week. But I want to talk about this primary theme in, in Esther of God's providence. Because God's, God's name is never in there, but his providence has fingerprints all over the story. So how do we fit together this idea of God is sovereign, of God's providence, and human action? How does that tapestry weave itself together? Well, the truth is that the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign, that he is the king of the universe, that he is in complete control of everything that happens on this earth. At the same time, it teaches us that God works in concert with human action, with human with what we do as human beings. And it tells us, even though God is sovereign and in complete control, we are responsible for our own choices. We can't say, the devil made me do it, and we can't even say, God made me do it. We are responsible for our own choices. So how does all that fit together? Well. First of all, that would take more time than we have left. In fact, that would take more time than a complete lecture on its own. In fact, it would take more than a semester to explain. In fact, I think we can't truly understand it. I think the ability to completely understand that God is in complete control, and yet he uses us in what he does, and we are responsible for our actions, and how does that work? I don't think we can completely understand it. Ultimately, I think that we are called to accept that both things are true at the same time because God tells us they are. Uh, and there's only so much that we can understand. There are parts of it that can be explained, but we don't have time for that today. Um, ultimately, I believe what the Bible tells us, that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. As the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts higher than our thoughts and his ways higher than our ways, and we have to accept that. 
So for now, let's just accept that both things are true, that God is sovereign and that we have a responsibility to act and we are responsible for our own choices and God somehow weaves all of those together to, for his own purposes to meet the end that he has planned. Uh, and these truths are all over Esther. Here's how Karen Jobes puts it. She says, neither of them, Mordecai and Esther, aspired to the role. Perhaps neither of them deserved it. It was thrust on them by a series of improbable circumstances largely beyond their control. Nevertheless, their unlikely partnership accomplished God's ancient promise, and the Jewish race was preserved until in the fullness of time, God entered history through his people as the Messiah. How marvelous are God's inscrutable ways. Because the book of Esther is a story about how God used ordinary people who weren't even necessarily faithful or making wise choices, um, we can see that God doesn't just use those whom we would think of as spiritually competent. He uses anyone who's willing to be used by him. Ministry is not just done by ordained ministers or people with degrees. Mine's in social studies education and physical education. I'm really seriously, literally not qualified to do what I'm doing right now. But God uses what we bring to the table to do ministry. And, and, and God desires to use each of us for his purposes. The only question is, will we let him? God, uh, Karen Job says that, that we have all been vested with an essential place in God's plan of redemption. Think about that for a minute. God has vested each of us with an essential place in his plan of redemption. That's amazing. You believe that? It's true. And, and my prayer is that this truth that God used ordinary people like Esther and Mordecai to fulfill his covenant promise will spur us on to live out faithfully what he has called us to do. Um, I would love it if you would just let me quote uh, Karen Jobes one last time. I'm going to miss her. I already miss the commentary. I think I'll read it this summer just for fun. As we continue to live faithfully in Christ, we can be sure that whatever happens to us, the decisions we make, the mistakes we regret, and even the sins that shame us, are all links in God's plan, not only for our individual lives, but for his greater work in history. Through his inscrutable ways, along paths that are sometimes dark and treacherous, he brings his people to that day when all creation will rejoice that our sorrow has been turned to joy and our mourning into celebration. That is what Esther is all about. And that is what God desires to do in our lives. I was going to take a hard right turn here into Ruth, but I think we'll save it for the beginning of next week. I think it's really important for us to just kind of stew on these truths of what God has called us to do uh, for his purposes. Um, and, but just, I will just say this, uh, particularly if you aren't familiar with the story of Ruth, but even if you are, it's four chapters. Read through the whole thing this week so that you have that whole picture in mind before uh, we even begin, okay? Let's pray.
Father God, thank you so much uh, for the truth of your word. Um, thank you so much that you're, you're willing to use us. You want to use us. That's your plan, is to use us to the end that you have planned from the beginning. Thank you that you would want to use one such as me uh, and each of us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would spur us on to want to fulfill the calling to which you have called us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, ladies. I'll see you next week.